Hello, and welcome to Open Your Eyes. This is a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools we need to grow and change. Most of all, I hope wherever you're listening right now and whatever the setting is, whether you're walking or driving or in your home office, I hope you'll hear something today that will improve your way of thinking that uh, will open your eyes a bit more to who you are and what you can become. Now, someone once asked me, how do you find your greatness? And the answer is, you don't. You foster greatness. You don't find greatness. You know, it's been said that greatness is a lot of small things done well every day. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. But when you're in the pursuit of something worthwhile, it often doesn't feel like greatness. Instead, it can feel mundane or monotonous or even unsuccessful. Roz Chast, the celebrated New Yorker cartoonist, said that at this point in her celebrated career, about 90% of her cartoons are still rejected. And she said earlier in her career, it was much worse. Even successful people face rejection all the time. Bob Mankoff, the cartoon editor for The New Yorker, verified that Roz was right. He said that he gets 500 cartoons a week and the magazine only uses 17, rejecting the others. That's a rejection rate of over 96%. As a child, Mankoff liked to draw. He went to LaGuardia High School of Music and Art. You know this school if you ever saw the movie Fame. And after school, he decided he wanted to be a cartoonist. So he created 27 cartoons, all rejected. He thought, how could anyone create more than 27? So he abandoned his goal and he decided to become a psychologist. So he went to college and then graduate school. And as he finished his doctorate, he realized the only way to really describe himself was funny. So he committed himself to his true end goal, and that was to be the best cartoonist in the world. Now, the New Yorker is to cartooning what the Yankees are to baseball. And he knew if he could make that team, he would be the best. So he started to draw in earnest. He got a few contract pieces placed in a few magazines, but his rejection rate was astronomical. So finally, he went to the New York City Public Library, looked up cartoons in the New Yorker back to 1925, and he studied and studied them. He thought, you know, something must be wrong with my cartoons. Like, maybe they were, the others were better draftsmen than he. Not true. Some of the cartoons used worse drawing techniques. He thought maybe his captions were too long or short, but that wasn't the case. He thought that maybe others were more funny. Not so. Some were more funny and others a little less. But there was something that the published cartoons had that his did not. They made the reader think. You know, each cartoon had the right amount of wrong. And the second thing you noticed was this. Each cartoonist had their own unique style. So Bob adjusted his approach. He used his understanding of psychology to make people think. And he adopted his own style and used a drawing method called stippling. That's where you draw using tiny dots, and the frequency of dots determines the shading of the cartoon. The next year, Bob sold a remarkable 13 cartoons to The New Yorker, then 25 the following year, and 27 the following. And he finally became a contract cartoonist, and he is now the editor at The New Yorker. The point is this. It is in the failure and perseverance of it 
that you find your greatness. And Bob did something very few of us ever do. He studied what it took to be successful. You know, the famous saying that success leaves clues was never more true than in Bob's rise to editor. He worked and worked at his craft. But you know, even the great ones fall and fail and must try again. We forget that sometimes, that greatness includes failing. Arnold Palmer was possibly the greatest golfer of all time. And in his 40-year career, he won 92 championships, 61 of them in the United States. During his career, he was named Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Decade. But in 1961, at the Los Angeles Open, on the par 5 ninth hole, Palmer hit a good drive, but he wanted to get on the green with his second shot, and he hit the ball out of play and had to take a penalty stroke. And this started one bad shot after another, and finally he finished with a 12 on the hole and didn't make the cut to play in the final rounds of the tournament. If you go to the ninth hole at Rancho Park Golf Course in Los Angeles today, there's a bronze plaque that states, on Friday, January 6, 1961, Arnold Palmer, voted golfer of the year and pro athlete of the year, took a 12 on this hole. Now, Palmer came back and won the Los Angeles Open three of the next six years, but the plaque stays as a tribute to one of the most critical skills any successful golfer must have. That's the resilience to bounce back and learn from mistakes. So what can we learn from Mankoff and Palmer? Don't give in to your short-term view. Often in the short term, you can't see the horizon. You must stay focused on the long-term goal and let the short-term defeats pass you by. Second, it takes consistent improving to achieve greatness. You know, earlier in my life, I was attempting to do something great and had failed in my first few months of trying miserably. I wrote a letter to my dad that I was quitting, and he wrote back to me and responded with a quote. And he often did this. He used quotes all the time. And the quote was from Og Mandino, and I memorized it and have repeated it many times since. And it said, the rewards are great if one succeeds, but the rewards are so great because so few succeed. Too many succumb to despair and fail along the way without realizing they already possess all the tools necessary for success. Dad was saying, don't give in to short-term struggles. Get better. Stay in the game. And if you do, you will do what others are unwilling to do. And my experience is that most business people fail because they are unwilling to stay in the game and continuously improve. When I worked in Japan, the staff in our office had a sign. This sign hung on the wall and it said, Nanakorobi Yaoki, which means fall seven, rise eight. Call it perseverance, stick to guts or grit. Regardless, when you stay in the game, you find greatness. Now, if you could give any gift to my children that would make the biggest difference in their life outside of charity, I would choose to give them perseverance or stick to That is the stuff that greatness is made of. Let's go back to Zaire, Africa in 1974. George Foreman was about to face Muhammad Ali in the heavyweight championship bout. Foreman had never been knocked out in a professional fight before, but that night in Zaire in 1974, at the fight famously called the Rumble in the Jungle, Foreman was outboxed and outfoxed 
by the fast hands of Ali. Throughout the fight, Ali jabbed at Foreman using his punching arm, a form of insult to boxers, saying, I'm so fast I can jab you with either hand. And he verbally attacked Foreman and used his tactic called rope-a-dope. He would lean back on the ropes and let Foreman wear himself out, punching Ali over and over again, while Ali insulted him and waited and waited. Ali waited until the eighth round, and by then Foreman was exhausted, and Ali took him out with a quick combination, and Foreman could not beat the count and was knocked out for the first time in his career. George would later say it seemed like he had been fighting his whole life. He was tired of fighting. You see, Foreman grew up in the fifth ward of Houston, Texas, where you had to fight just to stay alive. And if there was trouble, Foreman says, I was typically in the middle of it. But Foreman used the brutality he learned in the neighborhoods of Houston to launch his boxing career in the 1968 Olympics. As a professional, he was known as a brutal power puncher. He was fierce and explosive, and his tactic was power. He was ugly, mean, and antisocial. And he seemed to have a permanent chip on his shoulder and an angry sneer on his face. And of his 40 professional wins, 37 were by knockout. No one wanted to face the furious and ferocious George Foreman. Even before the Ali fight, however, it was evident that Foreman was self-destructing. So much anger can only burn so long. In the years after Ali knocked him out, Foreman tried to mount a comeback, but he couldn't. And finally, in 1977, after another loss in the locker room, he had a near-death experience where he heard God asking him to change his life and change his ways. And Foreman did change. He left boxing altogether. He started a ministry, opened a youth center in Houston, and began to serve people in his community. Not only did his life change, but his face changed. A smile, that famous George Foreman smile that sold millions of the lean, mean, grilling machine took over Foreman's life. And over the next 10 years, Foreman found his smile, made millions, and grew his ministry. He had everything, plus an amazing boxing career to look back on with pride. But Foreman had not reached greatness. He had not reached his goals, and he wanted that heavyweight title. The problem uh, was he was old and overweight and out of shape, and he'd lost the anger, that edge he'd had as a younger fighter. And the truth is, in boxing, nice fat guys don't win. Have you ever had a dream that you could become or do something remarkable, yet others thought you were too old or not talented enough? Have you ever tried and failed only to wonder if you really can? If so, take a lesson from Foreman. When he announced his intention to come back and take the heavyweight championship belt, almost everyone laughed and then dismissed it as a publicity stunt. But to Foreman, this was no stunt. This was about leaving this life having done what you set out to do. This was about greatness. So in 1987, at the age of 38, weighing 270 pounds and 10 years since he boxed his last professional bout, Foreman began his comeback. And for seven more years, he trained and fought while he continued his ministry. In his first year, he won five fights, and he started to slim down and get into shape. The next year, he won seven. And in 1991, he finally got his chance at the title, a fight against the champion Evander Holyfield. The fight went all 12 rounds, an amazing feat for the 41-year-old foreman. 
but he lost in a decision. While he lost, Foreman had a moral victory, right? He proved the skeptics wrong. He could stay in the ring for 12 rounds with the champion of the world. Surely he could hang it up now, right? He gave it a good try. His life was a success. So much for his goals and greatness, right? Foreman wasn't done. He had not yet reached his goal. And it is not over till you win. He went on to fight Alex Stewart and lost. Then Tommy Morrison and lost. But Foreman stayed in the game. Three long years later, 20 years since losing to Muhammad Ali, Foreman got another title shot. Michael Moore had won the heavyweight title and couldn't resist the purse that the promoters were giving to fight the smiling, famous Foreman. George had another shot at the title. Now, there was a problem. Foreman was 45 years old. Never had anyone so old won a title fight. And he had no chance against the younger, more powerful champion. How could he win? No one but Foreman thought he had a chance. So on November 5th, in Las Vegas, Nevada, Foreman stepped into the ring to reach his goal. Ironically, he was wearing the same red trunks he wore when he lost to Ali 20 years earlier. For the first nine rounds of the fight, Moore easily outboxed Foreman. Foreman couldn't keep up. Moore's right jab was too quick. He kept jabbing Foreman again and again, causing Foreman's left eye to swell shut. Frustrated, Foreman couldn't land a meaningful blow. And many of his swings just whiffed through the air, not connecting at all. But the older, fatter Foreman just stayed in the fight, punching, pursuing, and relentlessly taking the fight to Moore. Now, Foreman had lost much of his form, but none of his heart. Then, in a moment that will last forever in boxing history, a left jab followed by a short right hand caught Moore on the chin and sent him to the canvas. It happened so quick and so unexpected, it was unthinkable. Moore couldn't regain his feet. Foreman won. He had won. In a second, Foreman regained the title he lost to Ali 20 years before to the day. He became the heavyweight champion of the world at 45 years old. Nothing, nothing replaces perseverance and staying in the game. So if all this talk about perseverance is true, then why don't we persevere? We lack belief in ourselves, in the business, in the market, in other people, maybe. We can't see the end from the beginning and understand that the road to success was always paved with failures and the need to persevere. And when we hear these great stories of people who persevered, we often don't talk of the failures, right, that they had along the way. We don't talk of the risks they took or the pain they experienced. And we should probably talk more about that because the road to greatness is paved with failure and perseverance. You should know about Maxie Filer. Maxie was the president of the Compton branch of the NAACP, flag bearer for the Southern California delegation to the 63 March on Washington, and he worked to foster racial harmony in South Los Angeles. He was born in Arkansas, moved to California in 52, and earned a law degree. His dream? To practice law. So in 67, he sat for the bar exam. He failed the test. And while he waited to take it again, he worked as a law clerk. He took the test again, failed. Now, you can take the bar exam two times a year, which Maxie did. He failed every time. In 1976, he ran for and became a city councilman in Compton. 
He served for 15 years on the city council. And while he served, he raised a family and he kept taking the bar exam again and again, two times a year. And he failed each time. When his two sons graduated from law school, he took the bar exam with them. His sons passed, but he didn't. Maxie took every review course available, but to no avail. The city attorney in Compton said Maxie was just too busy doing good deeds to everyone around him to pass the test. Every time the exam scores would come in the mail, Maxie would stack the envelope on top of the previously received rejection envelopes on the mantle above his fireplace as a reminder that someday he would reach his goal and pass the exam. Even Dear Abby suggested that Maxie hang it up, but he was undeterred. Undeterred, excuse me. In 1991, on try number 48, Mr. Maxie Filer took the bar exam again. And when the envelope arrived, his son Anthony opened the letter and started screaming, Daddy passed the bar. Daddy passed the bar. After 24 years and $50,000 in testing fees, he passed. When Maxie was sworn in as one of California's 128,000 lawyers, he got a standing ovation from his new colleagues. Now, Maxie passed away a few years back. At his memorial service, he was remembered with three words, persistence, persistence, persistence. Thomas Edison said, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Earlier in life, I was a marathon runner. I still run just slower and shorter than I used to. But I ran 20 or so marathons during my uh, lifetime. And what I learned about running a marathon is simple. It always takes more energy and effort than you ever thought possible. It takes more training, more desire, and more endurance than you initially considered. The funny thing is, the easiest marathon I ran was my first one. Why? It was new and exciting, and everyone was talking about it, and my family was there cheering me on, and it was easy to find the energy and effort to finish. The hardest marathon was my third or fourth. In these marathons, no one was watching. I had done marathons before, so the luster had worn off the experience. The expectations were higher because I had run before, and I needed to beat my previous times, right? Other people who I trained with, who trained with me on my first marathon had stopped and they were doing other things, so I was left to myself. And on the difficult days, I often asked myself, why am I doing this? You see, that's when you learn a lot about your greatness and whether you can persevere. No doubt, in your life or business, you've experienced the same thing. When the luster is gone and you must persevere and decide to do it again because you know deep down you are a runner or you are a business person, it takes courage and faith and belief to decide again. The second thing I learned from running marathons is this. Every day when I ran, I had one picture in mind. What would it feel like to cross the finish line in the time I had set for myself? This image of the finish line carried me through the rain and the cold and the aches and the pain. A clear image of where you're headed, a clear, well-defined image makes all the difference in enabling you to persevere. What I learned about running marathons is that it isn't over until you reach your goal. It took me 11 marathons to reach my first goal time. My other friends did it much faster, much easier. That's almost four years of training and running to reach that goal. I learned it isn't over 
until you win. A long time ago, I met Les Brown, a motivational speaker, and he told us a story of playing the game Connect Four with his son and taught us the lesson of it's not over till I win. You see, his son wouldn't quit until he won, and they had to play a lot of games of Connect Four until his son won. Well, inspired by his words, I went home and shared this message with my kids. I wanted to teach them about perseverance, and I bought a Connect Four game. And I was hoping to teach them the lesson that Les taught me. Well, the following week, after sharing that with my children, child number four, 10-year-old Elizabeth, pulled out the game and we started to play. After I'd won about 10 games in a row, I was tired and wanted to stop. And like Les Brown taught, she said defiantly, keep playing, Dad. It's not over till I win. So we continued to play. After I won another five games, I was ready to quit. And she said, set up the game, Dad. It's not over till I win. After another five games, the same thing. But this time with tears in her eyes, she said, it's not over till I win. And we played on. On game number 27, I didn't see three of the checkers lined up. And she connected four and told me, now it's over. I've won. Since I've seen this attitude in her to graduate from college, serve in foreign countries, and do very, very tough things in life and persevere. It's not over till you win. You are not finished. You will not slow down. You will not falter. You will not stop until you win, until you finish what you started. This is your tomorrow that we're talking about. And this is infinitely more important than anything short term. It is not over until you win. Now, you might say, but McKay, I'm nothing special. I'm mediocre at best. Join the club. I'm mediocre. This virtual podcast room is filled with mediocre. Do you know the origin of the word mediocre? It's mediocris, which means halfway up the mountain. That's what I am, and that's what you are. We're just halfway towards who you are meant to become. Now, you may say, but I set a goal and I start strong and I get into the work of it and the negative things and the negative thinking and the negative feelings get the best of me and I lose my motivation. I don't care what you're doing. If it's worthwhile, it will be challenging and the negative will come. The trick is to make sure that you always have more positive emotion than negative. You must add fuel to your goal. You must add fuel to your future. So how do you fuel yourself and how do you fuel your future? First, feed your mind, feed your soul, feed your emotions, feed your knowledge with inspiration and skill, just like you're doing right now by listening to this podcast. You see, very few people seek to better themselves. And by doing that, trying to better yourself, you're in the top few percent of this country's population. You're already setting yourself apart. That fuel will enable you to persevere. A starving soul doesn't last very long in the fight of life. Number two, have a clear vision of who you're becoming, where you're going, and what the finish line looks like. When you run, when you act, when you build with a dream in your heart, you run, you act, you build different. A clear vision will fuel your future. Number three, picture what it will be like when you finally reach that goal. That feeling when you imagine that moment will fuel your future. Number four, be accountable to a team or another person. Now, this fuels perseverance like nothing else. It makes you fierce. It brings daily toughness. 
Whenever we exercise discipline and meet expectations with another person, we get a positive lift. When you build alongside others, they help you feed the positive. When you do these four things and fuel your future, watch. As we end today, remember Bob Mankoff. Greatness comes in perfecting your craft and staying in the game. Remember George Foreman. It doesn't matter your age or your weight or what anyone else thinks you can or cannot do. Let perseverance define your life. If you persevere, 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 you will find greatness. Thanks for being here today. We'll talk about the next steps to opening your eyes in our next podcast. And I look forward to being with you again soon.